Welcome to Back in Control Radio. Your host is Dr. David Hanscom. Today's podcast is the neuroscience of chronic pain. Hi, this is our first show. I'm David Hanscom. I'm a spine surgeon in Seattle, Washington. And the show is intended to deepen the understanding of the project called the DOC Project. It stands for Direct Your Own Care. I wrote a book called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And the intent of this program is to deepen the understanding of people who have already read the book, the website, and engage in the process. And the overall doc process is not a difficult process to engage in, but there's many details and many questions that arise, and that's the intent of the show is to answer questions so other people can benefit from the, uh, from the answers. <clears throat> so I want to start out tonight with simply explaining the neurological nature of chronic pain. What's happened in modern medicine, we've gotten very technology-focused, looking for a cause for everything. And it turns out that chronic pain is a neurological problem, not a structural problem. So with modern technology, we have MRI scans, x-rays, all sorts of invasive testing, et cetera, that's very, very detailed and wonderful. Most symptoms in the body are what's called physiologic. In other words, it's the body's response to external environment that allows you to stay alive. For instance, physiology is level, level of blood chemicals, your heart rate, your stomach contractions, and stuff like that. And that's all controlled by the unconscious brain. Now, it turns out that pain is one of those basic mechanisms that keeps all of us alive. And people that are born without pain fibers called congenital indifference to pain don't survive. In other words, they have nothing to protect themselves. So pain is part of the physiological response to the environment. It turns out that chronic pain is when the system goes awry in short circuits, basically. So I want to explain to you the basic neurophysiology of chronic pain. It turns out to be a neurological disorder, not a structural problem. And what the way the body survives is that you're processing all sensory input, sight, touch, sound, feel, and what happens, your body is using your sensors, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, et cetera, to interpret your sense, your environment. That takes the sum total, some, some total of, the, of these sensations, and every second directs your body to act in a way that remains safe. So, for instance, if you're short of breath, you'll breathe harder. If you're in a spot that's too hot, you'll move someplace that's less hot. And so, again, you're always staying in this range of, in, of behavior based on your sensory input. So if the sum total of that sensory input is positive, your body secretes chemicals like dopamine and serotonin, which are the, are the relaxation chemicals, then your body feels relaxed. If you feel threatened, in other words, unpleasant, too loud of a sound, too hot, too cold, or whatever, then your body secretes stress chemicals, and you feel anxious. It turns out that anxiety generated by this unpleasant sensory input is your body's way of staying safe, but it's also the result of sensory input. It's not the cause of sensory input. Anxiety is a neurochemical response to unpleasant sensory input. Every living creature has anxiety. They have avoidance behavior. Again, that's how different species have evolved and survived is that the ones that ignore these signals simply didn't survive. Humans have the additional problem from other living creatures in that we have consciousness. 
And what happens is that consciousness is how we evolved as humans and eventually became the dominant species. But thoughts and consciousness have the same effect on the brain as physical input. So it turns out that mental input and physical input are interpreted by the brain in a similar manner, and the chemical response is the same. So if you have pleasant thoughts and you're enjoying a good book, your body's secreting relaxation chemicals, you feel relaxed. If your mind's racing about your boss at work or finances or some relationship issue, then your body again is under stress, and then you secrete these stress chemicals. The problem with human consciousness is that you can't escape it. Humans are unique. In fact, that you cannot escape your thoughts. So what happens, you have this endless assault of stress chemicals that keeps your body fired up in a fight-or-flight response. And although the fight-or-flight response is very functional for survival, it's not great for day-to-day life. A friend of mine pointed out the fact that the human body is is designed for one purpose, and that's to survive. So what happens is that you're always always on the lookout for danger, and your body's always reacting in a way that's looking around for danger signals. The species that's the most anxious, by the way, is the species that has stayed alive. So with thought, you can suffer with them. They get stronger with repetition. You can suppress them, which is even worse. Masking actually works for a while while you're drinking or on drugs where actually you're not feeling the pain very much. But obviously, long term, that doesn't work either. So whether you suffer or suppress or mask your thoughts, chemical assault. So the bottom line is the basis for ongoing chronic pain is actually mental input. It turns out that mental pain and physical pain have a similar part of the brain that's being stimulated. The chemical result is the same. So it turns out that mental pain and physical pain are essentially the same thing. So for humans, the basis for developing chronic pain is this endless progression of thoughts as you get older, this barrage of of stress chemicals, and it doesn't stop. So why it's so critical to understand that anxiety is part of the survival response is that the unconscious brain, of which anxiety is a part of, or the basic root of, is a million times stronger than the conscious brain. So if you have this endless barrage of thoughts with bodily reactions, you're not going to solve this. This is a million-to-one ratio, and the more you try to fight it, you're actually paying more attention to it and actually reinforcing it. So that doesn't sound very promising, does it? You have this massive survival response. The human consciousness is a complete mismatch for this massive unconscious survival response. So what do you do? So medicine, first of all, the neuroscience has actually proven that this is true. In fact, the last five years, neuroscience has been rather stunning. And it turns out that that the chronic pain that we just discussed is a neurological problem, that the brain memorizes these pathways. You're under this endless chemical assault, and your body is on fire. There's over 30 different symptoms that that are occurring because of this sensitized nervous system. So you have this massive chemical assault. You have this endless barrage of unpleasant thoughts. You have unrelenting anxiety that gets worse as you get older. And then your body starts to react in a very unpleasant way. So I do want to take a second. We'll discuss this on a future program. Is that there's over 30 symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system. And what happens is that each organ responds in its own unique way. 
For instance, adrenaline and cortisol, they shut down the blood supply to the stomach. They shut down the blood supply to the bladder and the frontal lobe of the brain. So what happens is that you have irritable bowel syndrome, spastic bladder. The adrenaline and stress chemicals sensitize the nervous system in a way that increases the conduction of the nerves. So symptoms like headaches, pain, become very, very sensitized. In fact, the animal studies show that you you double or triple the speed of conduction of the nerves with a stressed nervous system. So a situation where you ordinarily would not feel pain, now the pain becomes quite acute based on the fact that you have this body full of stress chemicals. So what you're trying to do to deal with this is to, first of all, decrease the body's adrenaline. And you probably heard of techniques like mindfulness, meditation, et cetera, that calm things down. And they do have an effect. And the, way, the reason why they have an effect is that, the, again, the body, the, in other words, anxiety is the adrenaline. As you, calm down the anxi- as you calm down the adrenaline, you actually calm down this feeling of anxiety. So we have found out that you take a multi-prone approach with, with one of the basic steps of decreasing the adrenaline is a significant factor. And then there's ways of actually rerouting the brain so your automatic survival response becomes a more rational response and you have less reactivity to a given stimulus. So that's the basic premise of the DOC project, and we'll keep talking a little bit, a little bit further. But the idea... Well, is this pain real? And the answer is, of course, the pain is real. But it's a physiologic problem. It's not a structural problem. The other reason why it's so critical to understand the basic physiological nature of chronic pain is that probably 90% of our medical interventions are for structural issues. In other words, people do, I'm a spine surgeon, so let's talk about back pain for a second, is that we somehow decided that disc degeneration is a source of back pain. What's ironic is that we don't know a lot about where back pain does come from. We actually do know that disc degeneration is not connected with back pain. In other words, the disc becomes degenerated and stiffer, but it doesn't, it doesn't cause pain. And that's been shown in multiple research studies. However, although there's not one research paper that documents that back surgery works for back pain, we have over 11 billion dollars a year of spine surgery being done with probably over half of that being done for back pain. So medicine has become very focused on structural interventions. For instance, epidural injections for back pain have been shown not to be effective. And if they're effective, they may work for two or three weeks, but again, really not effective. We have facet rhizotomies where people burn the little nerve roots in the back of the spine, they call the facet joints. And those have actually been shown not to be effective. And again, the problem is that pain come in the back comes from the soft tissues and we actually don't know exactly where the pain is coming from. In other words, the misnomer in medicine is that there's a structural reason for everything and it's actually the other way around where it's actually not a structural reason for most symptoms. The problem with spine surgery specifically is that we don't, don't know where the pain is coming from. The interventions that we perform are quite invasive. We're actually damaging the spine. 
So if you do an intervention like an epidural that may not work that well, but at least doesn't harm you, that's one thing. The problem with spine surgery is once you perform a spine fusion for back pain, you've actually damaged the spine. My practice is involved in seeing multiple surgeries, patients with what's called failed back syndrome. There are so many of these failed back surgeries is that they now have a term for it called failed back syndrome. And it means you've undergone multiple surgeries that haven't worked. So the problem is, again, if you don't know the exact source of the pain in the first place, and you go ahead and do a structural intervention, the chances of it working are very, very low. One of the metaphors I like to use, or examples I like to use, is that of going to the dentist. If you go to the dentist with a cavity that's obviously the source of your pain, and you have the cavity fixed, the chance of success is almost 100%, or you pull the tooth. If you go to the dentist with mouth pain, but you don't know exactly where the pain's coming from, and you start doing procedures on different teeth, et cetera, et cetera, it could be a sinus problem. It could be gum disease. I mean, who knows where the pain is coming from? So if you start doing random procedures based on the fact that not knowing exactly where the pain is coming from, the chances of success go down very, very low. So with spine surgery for back pain, the data that has come out since 2001 shows that there is not one paper that shows that it actually works. In fact, the success rate for spine surgery for back pain is about 22%. That's it, 22%. It also shows that if you do any surgery in the presence of chronic pain, in other words, a fired up nervous system, the chance of inducing or causing chronic pain is about 40 to 60% or making the pain worse. So the chances of actually making your pain worse are over double that of actually making your pain better with a major operative intervention. I see in my practice pretty much every day now where people come to me who've had one-level fusions, 10-level fusions, 20-level fusions, and they often come back in not only worse than they were before the surgery, but much worse. And the statement I hear over and over and over again is if I just knew how bad this was going to be, I never would have done it. When I give lectures to the audience, I ask them the question, look, how many of you would undergo surgery if you had a chance of success was 90%? And, of course, most people raise their hand. Then I asked him, what would be the chance of success if your pain was at 50%, chance of success of relieving your pain was 50%? And not that many people raise their hands. And of course, when I tell them the success rate is around the 20, 25% rate, of course, nobody raises their hand. The problem is when you go see your surgeon or your physician, most of us, most of us believe, including myself historically, that the success rate is like 75, 80, 90%. And the data just isn't there. So, and then also we weren't taught is that the data shows clearly again that if you operate in the presence of chronic pain, the chance of causing chronic pain at the new surgical site is between 40 to 60%. And nobody really discusses the concept of creating chronic pain as a complication of surgery. So if I had a neurological complication rate of 10, 20%, I probably wouldn't be a spine surgeon for very long. Chronic pain is actually a bigger complication than having an injured nerve root because you get to live with, live with it for the rest of your life. So in the big picture, just to summarize what we talked about, it turns out chronic pain is a neurological problem with a chemical response. The brain is because it's very sensitive. You have a hyperreactive nervous system you not only feel pain that you wouldn't ordinarily feel, you start feeling pain at a much higher level than you ordinarily would feel. 
And they said you can't escape it. You start becoming very frustrated. If you become very frustrated, it increases your body's chemistry even more, and you have more pain. So you get a horrible cycle going, and so breaking that cycle is the essence of the Back and Control Project. It's a self-directed project. We've had lots of success with it. Most people get better without surgery. Even surgical patients are cancer in the surgeries because their pain disappears. And it's been a very, very interesting process. So the bottom line is to treat anything in life, whether it's a business, mechanical, political situation, you have to completely understand the problem. With chronic pain, it's really critical. It's a complicated problem. It's extremely important to understand all aspects of the problem, particularly as it relates to you personally. And then at that point, once you see the problem, it's a solvable problem. So if there's any questions, I'm happy to take those questions. And I have a listener here who has a question. Babs, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, um, a very close friend of mine suffers from migraine headaches. And um, so you're saying that this doc project would work for any kind of chronic pain. And um, I'm very interested, but I but how do we calm down the nervous system? And what can I tell her as far as tools go? So it's interesting because there's over... Um, 30 symptoms of chronic pain, and migraine headaches is one of those. And what happens with migraine headaches is that the adrenaline just shuts down the blood supply to the frontal lobe of the brain, and then when you relax just a little bit, the, the blood vessels dilate, and, the, and that's when the headache occurs. So as you calm down the nervous system, it ends up having a migraine. So the answer is yes, migraine headaches do respond. I was a migraine headache sufferer myself for over 40 years. I've not had a severe migraine in probably 15 years now. So migraine headaches are one of the classic things that actually respond to the project. So I do have a caller here. I'm going to answer this. Um, can I take your hello? Um, could you could you give me your name, please? Uh, yes, my name is Tom Masters. And where, from, where are you calling uh, Seattle, from, Tom? Washington. Okay, great. Uh, Seattle, Washington. Okay. And uh, my question is: so does this mean that your uh, pain actually gets wired in? Your brain is actually wiring in your pain because of all of these stress hormones and, you know, the way you're being triggered, your brain actually sort of wires in the pain pathway so that they're more easily triggered. Was that what you were uh, saying? Well, there's two parts of it. The research shows that, first of all, the brain becomes sensitized. And a classic example of that is water torture, that over about three to six months, the reactivity of the brain goes up something like 500% to the same stimulus. So just the repetition causes the brain to be sensitive. And with, for instance, take water torture. It's just a drop of water. That drop of water doesn't change. But the perception of the drop of water actually increases like a sledgehammer. And to the point where it feels like a sledgehammer, it's a very disturbing problem. 
And then with repetition, it's like an athletic event or learning music or art. As you, with repetition, your brain starts memorizing that pattern of circuits. And I, the term pathways is a difficult issue. I use the term pathways because it's the easiest to understand. But the pathways are really patterns of brain activity that become reinforced with repetition. So it happens over and over and over again. And so the answer, the brain does the pain, the pain circuits do become memorized. And the analogy I use a lot of is that of riding a bicycle, is that once you know how to ride a bicycle, that's a permanent pathway. Once you learn how to play a musical instrument, you may not remember how to play it as well, but those pathways are memorized in your brain. The problem with pain is that it gets memorized in about three to six months because the impulses come in so quickly. So, you know, it takes a major league baseball player, you know, years and years to be able to throw a baseball the way he does in the major leagues. And the pain impulses come in very focused. They come in very, very rapidly like a machine gun. So that same process occurs in about three or six months as occurs with a major league athlete over, over years. So, yeah, the, the, those pathways do become memorized and they are permanent. And then if you try to, again, if you continue to experience them um, or suffer with them, why they become stronger. If you try not to think about them or suppress them, they become even stronger. There's a, there's a strong trampoline effect. And then, of course, all of us try different masking behaviors to try to solve the problem. And one of my classic masking behaviors, you know, is I'm, I'm a workaholic, right? So any addiction, drug, sex, gambling, whatever you want to do at work, um, is a way of masking the pain pathways. And that's probably the most effective way, even though it really doesn't solve the problem. So it doesn't sound very good oh. either. It sounds you have these permanent embedded pathways. And the definition of chronic pain is, is that chronic pain is a neurological memory that is connected with more and more life experiences, and the memory can't be erased. So it sounds pretty discouraging, right? <laughs> Definitely. I was going to say, what do you do? Right. So that's to be on. That's beyond the scope of this discussion. And these are things we'll be talking about over the uh, over the weeks. And so, what I'm going to tell the listeners tonight is simply um, grab my book. It's called Back in Control: A Surgeon's Roadmap to Chronic Pain. Go to the website backincontrol.com, and then on the website you'll see what's called the Roadmap Out of Pain, which has four stages. Those stages match the book, and stage one has five steps. And the five steps include, number one, learning about pain. Number two, I would urge the readers to start with what's called expressive writing, and that'll be the topic of our next radio show is simply talking about expressive writing. The third thing is called active meditation, which you simply put your brain on a different sensation. The fourth one is sleep, which will be the topic of a given podcast. And the final one, which has been really challenging for a lot of people, is never discussing your pain. Because your brain is very neuroplastic and will, your brain will develop whatever direction you place its attention. So if you end up talking about your pain, first of all, it's tedious for people around you. But second of all, you're really, really enforcing these permanent pathways. And so that's actually been a very powerful tool, is to say, look, when you walk out of the door of my office, you will never discuss your pain again ever with anybody except your providers. And it takes people off guard because most people are taught to talk about the pain, get empathy, support, et cetera. It actually reinforces the pain pathways. So we're on. Um, we're we're going to close down the radio show tonight, and I'd like to point out that we'll be doing this podcast 
every Wednesday at 5 o'clock Pacific time. We will give you some links to email and questions that we can answer on the show for you. And I would encourage anybody involved in the process to call in with questions because it really helps other people to hear the answers in your situation. All of us are on the same journey. I continue to learn things myself. And I'm very excited about talking to the group. Thanks.